0: A warm greetings to Galaxy listeners, I'm Maconan Sankofa and I'll be hosting the Black Book Show up until 8pm British Summertime this evening. For those who are new to the show or new to the station, the Black Book Show is a show hosted here on Galaxy between... 6 and 8 p.m uk time we bring you the best authors of african heritage from around the world through interviews and special features with authors the station is based in uk but i would like to rise up the many galaxy listeners from all over the world who listen to the station we have a great show coming up this evening our special guest is here with us i am now joined with larry yukali johnson red who is the author of multiple books On this episode of The Black Book Show, Larry will be speaking first about his book called Journey to the Motherland, from San Francisco to Benin City. He will also be speaking about his book, Letter to My Young Brothers and Their Parents. Welcome, Larry, to The Black Book Show. Please start by telling the listeners where you're based and give a brief introduction about who you are as a person before I begin to ask you some questions about the books you've written.
1: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be your guest today. Uh, my name is Larry Ukali Johnson, Red. I am born and raised in San Francisco, California. And uh, of course, I uh, travel to the motherland called Nigeria, a country called Nigeria. And I, uh, I still have beautiful memories of being in Nigeria.
0: Okay, well, let's start right there. And you mentioned Nigeria and obviously your book you've written, Journey to the Motherland from San Francisco to Benin City. Now, for those who don't know, Benin City is a city. uh, Is it located in Nigeria? Now, um, let's go on to talk about that book now. Um, And what I'm going to ask you to do first is to give a summary about that book, Journey to the Motherland from San Francisco to Benin City.
1: Okay, so the book is about my late wife, uh, Chinwe Amechi Johnson, read, of course, she was an OzoMa from Nigeria. So Chinwe Amechi and I met when uh, we were both 19 years old in San Francisco, while she was going to City College and I was going to USF. And so we, we met at actually a party. Um, that have been. I was invited to by one of my Nigerian co-workers at UC Medical Center where I worked. And um, when I got there, um, I saw Chinway and we were dancing and all of a sudden we just fell in love that night. And I mean, we really got to know each other well. Um, we started um, actually working together on our academic projects at schools. She was at US, I was at USF and she was at C. But soon she graduated to San Francisco State University. And we both got our BAs, mine from USF. And then we both went to Golden Gate University. So we had a long history of getting to know each other before we got married. And so but when I got to Africa, my father-in-law took me to the side. He said, well, when you go to the naval Law and Custom, make sure you say that you met in the library. And I honor my father-in-law for that. Um, but but definitely uh, we met in San Francisco and we enjoyed each other.
0: Now, I know you said you, you met your wife, uh, your late wife, Chinwe, uh in San Francisco and you knew her for a long time. How long exactly did you know her for in terms of years or roughly? And then you got married. Um, what made Wait. you then decide to relocate to Nigeria as opposed to stay as a married couple in the United States of America?
1: Very good question. And the fact is that um, once we did get married, after three years or so, and um, we got married, and then uh, we were both young people. I had graduated with my university degrees. We were both looking for jobs. But we were looking for the good jobs, the corporate jobs. And of course, there was a lot of racism at that time in the corporations. And so the, we didn't uh, actually get those good corporate jobs, but I got jobs that gave me trouble and that worked against my dignity. And so one day we were having a conversation and she always said, well, if you come to me, if you come with me to my country, you will never have your dignity challenge and you'll always be treated well and you will not be unemployed. Those three things she said turned out to be absolutely true. Because I did go to Nigeria based on my disappointment with corporate America and how it was going at that time for me, my first three years in corporations.
0: Okay, so now what I want to do is get a bit more, um, we'll find out a bit more about your background. Now, I'm assuming you're an African-American. Now, your wife or your late wife, she is a Nigerian. Um, now now you for example other than you know ancestrally as an all you know african americans um, ancestrally come from the motherland africa but you didn't have any kind of like connections like she did because obviously her um she was was she born in nigeria before she came to the united states
1: actually actually chinway was born in madison wisconsin by her father and mother her father has since uh, passed on her mother is still alive in northern nigeria and that's where they lived when I got to, uh, when I flew to um, uh, Nigeria from, uh, let's see, we first stopped in Ivory Coast, and then we stopped in another country, and then, the, then we hit uh, Lagos. And so when I flew into Lagos, uh, we first of all found her cousin and hooked up with her cousin, but her father and mother were living in Zyria. Her father was a teacher in a school, a biology teacher. So, but eventually I got to Zaria and I got a chance to meet my father-in-law. So
0: did it take you um, time to adapt to the culture and environment? Because uh, yeah, even though, you know, we are people of African heritage and all all over the world, but uh, we, you know, we can go to Nigeria and we can look similar like we're Nigerian or whatever African country we go to. But the reality is, you know, we are still different in terms of, you know, our culture, our language and what we're used to, et cetera. So how did you find, you know, adapting to that culture and environment, particularly someone who, you know, doesn't have like a Nigerian parents or grandparents and is never been to Nigeria?
1: Another good question. And the reason um, I had no problem understanding Nigeria was because my late wife's best friend was from Cameroon. And so my late wife spoke Igbo. She's from Igbo land. So they could not speak together as friends without going into broken English. And because of that, I learned Nigerian broken English before I set foot in my uh, Benin classroom. And knowing broken English kind of opened Nigeria up to me. So the customs man first told me when I got there, he says, uh, I say, do I look like anybody here? He said, you look like you could be from Kwara State, where the Black Fulani are. So he gave me a tri- an idea of what tribe I-, I looked like anyway. And because I could speak broken English, I just felt at home in Nigeria. Plus, with my late wife, she was always around me, taking care of me, looking out for me. So everything went very well on my trip into Nigeria.
0: How long was you in Benin City? Because uh, that was where you're primi- primarily based most of the time, Benin City right. in Nigeria. <laughs> How long was you there from? And what was your experience like going from San Francisco to Benin City, like the, the differences in terms of the contrast?
1: Oh, there was a contrast. And the fact is that when I got, when I, first of all, we were going to try and go into uh, uh, Zaria. But the jobs didn't work out there and for various reasons um, I said, well since I know Brooklyn and somebody had told me, oh you don't go to your wife village, never you know because you know being in your wife village could be complicated. <clears throat> so I decided let's go to Benin city Chinway, and she said, okay, let's go And so we we went to uh, the Public Service Commission, and said, we want to go to Benin City. And then the, the government sent us to Benin City because all those states needed teachers. So it was a pretty good thing that I chose to go to uh, Benin City because I can understand so much. Because even though they speak Edo in Benin, and they speak it all the time, they, they, Edo is like French. They They love it. But they also have so many different tribes in Benin City. The broken English is the lingua franca. And if you can understand broken, you got the key to the city.
0: Did you like it there in Benin City? And is it somewhere that you advise people to travel to?
1: Oh, I loved it. And uh, there are so many reasons why I loved it. First of all, I still have friends in Benin City. A. B. Uh, Benin City is very friendly uh, to to guests, to out-of-towners. And also, they have good palm wine. So I used to drink palm wine in, in, mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I would finish teaching in school. I would come home and drink some nice, cool palm wine and just enjoy the sunshine or, or start going out at Ring Road. Ring Road is a major road in Benin City because, uh, man, when I first got there and I used to ride the taxis uh, to go to school, I, have, I would just enjoy all the pretty girls that would get in. Into the car in Ring Road, so Ring Road is like the city center, and it's where all the activity is, and it's where the Chief's Palace is, the Oba of Benin. So it's a very bright part of the city. And I, and after a while, I started, I got my cars, and I started driving around Benin City. So I loved driving in Benin City, but they did have traffic jams, but the traffic jams were always entertaining because crazy things would happen or. Or people would be greeting each other on the road. It was just a lovely city to, to be in. Yes.
0: Well, that sounds amazing. And you know what? One of the things that people are always concerned about Nigeria when when you mention Nigeria, it seems to me when I speak to people, seem people seem to either love it or hate it. It's like people. It seems to be a love hate relationship when I speak to a lot of people of Nigeria. Um, but one of the main issues that you often hear about is uh, safety, and this is not just by you know what. Western media outlets, there's people that I know that are Nigerians, people that are there in Nigeria and people that have spent lengthy times um, and people from different backgrounds that have been to Nigeria. And one of the things that does come up is, you know, the safety. Did you feel safe when you was in Benin City?
1: Yes, I felt very safe. And And that was 1977 to 1981. So then they had Shigari come in as the president in 79 and then there were no more road checks, you know, the the road checks became less. But I never felt my safety at risk because I remember Obasanjo, who was a president at that time, he would always say, he would say, um, we want to make blacks wherever they are proud of our efforts. So that kind of guided me. I said, if you hear that the first day you get into a country, then you know things aren't going to be too bad. Now, today, there's a whole different situation. But back then, uh, my safety was not a problem. And I do remember one time the police said to me, they said, oh, God, saw. nobody you we see on TV. I beg, paso, paso. So I, was, I did have some... Uh, uh, time on nigerian television to compare the nigerian 1979 um, constitution and the american constitution you know because there were differences and there were similarities so it made the interesting discussion and apparently when i was on tv one of the police saw me who saw me in the street said oh god paso i still got that broken in me you know
0: so just want you to clarify confirm you know um what year you uh, arrived in Nigeria when you came back from Nigeria to USA and what caused you to come back from Nigeria to United States?
1: Okay. I had, uh, I was a teacher in a school, in a high school called Edo Gram- um, Egoza Grammar, School, not Edo, Egosa Grammar School. And in fact, I taught government there and it was an academic pleasure because the students have been under 13 years of military government, but they all knew what the senators were. They knew the language. And we have very interesting discussions because sometime I had to explain to them how gerrymandering and vote rigging was occurring in America to African-Americans since 1900. And they say, oh no, not America. And I say, well, the practice of government is much different from the ideals. And so I continued to, uh, you know, give my students a chance to understand what the difference between America and Africa, as well as between the two different constitutions. And I also uh, informed them about how it wasn't always easy for African-Americans in America. Although many of my students ended up in, you know, neighboring towns and uh, neighboring states. A lot of uh, my students ended up in Benin, I mean, in... Uh, Texas and then Houston and uh, some, there's a couple in Sacramento, a whole a bunch of my students are on the East Coast as well as London. And the reason I know that is because they invited me to London uh, when they had the EGOSA uh, Old Boys uh, Group a convention, the fourth convention. They invited me there uh, with no expenses. In other words, they paid for everything. And they invited me and said, thank you for being a, a great teacher. So I was really honored because nothing like that ever happens in American education.
0: Just clarify, what year did you arrive in Nigeria?
1: 1977, November 1977. And I left in 81, 1981. So
0: 1977 to 1981. What was the cause of you leaving? Was it because your wife passed away or I'm not too sure of the reason?
1: we actually both came back to the USA and she started working on her PhD. So what happened is that she had some health challenges uh, that emerged then under those circumstances. And so uh, she ended up on dialysis and I, you know, giving full care to my late wife and I still give her honor, but she fought and then she had a stroke and passed at 33. So we came back together Uh, We didn't I didn't leave her in Nigeria. She didn't leave me in America. We came back to us together, but she had a decline in health in her 31. And by 33, she passed away. And may God bless her. She was a good woman.
0: Now, I understand a bit in terms of the situation of why you came back to USA. Um, Did you prefer, though, your life that you had in uh, Nigeria and Benin City over the life that you had in USA, San Francisco?
1: Well, yeah, I was at a very difficult time in my early 20s with having degrees that Black men had not had previously. I mean, they had been boxing us out of education. But after 1969, all those rebellions in Vietnam, you know, all the, the things we were demonstrating against, all of a sudden the USF was open uh, and they allowed 400 African-Americans, including me, into USF. And that was in 1970. So that was a whole different thing for America. But once I got my degree, I found so much racial discrimination that yes, I wanted to go to Nigeria. I just wanted to have a regular experience. And when I got to Nigeria, I had a beautiful experience because my students were so respectful and the curriculum was laid out. And students had to take a test to show that they had learned their lessons, which they did. And we just had a, a massive Um, education thing going in Nigeria. Plus in 1979, Awolo was there. He was the, like the regional leader for us because we were in the UP, Unity Party of Nigeria area, which had free education as a theme. So it was a wonderful time to be in Nigeria where educators maybe not paid as much, but they were appreciated. And I was appreciated. And I really loved being in Nigeria and I say to the people in Nigeria, thank you for being a great host to me. I love being in Benin City, but I traveled to the east. I had to do Native Law and Custom Marriage with my late wife. Um, so I traveled to the east. I traveled many times to Lagos. I had uh, friends in all over the place. Um, even there was an African-American basketball player who was a basketball coach. And the famous Lee Evans used to come and visit him, and I would visit And I would get a chance to talk with Lee Evans, who was a famous track star. So, yeah, it was a wonderful visit. And I saw so much diversity in Nigeria. I saw so many people who look like people that look like me, people that look like my brothers, people who look like my sisters and my cousins. And that's why I'm saying if you ever get a chance to visit Nigeria, visit Nigeria. Um, However, more African-Americans, a thousand are living in Ghana now. And Ghana is less, a smaller country with less of the particulars that Nigeria has. Nigeria now has 250 million. It had only 150 million when I was there, but 200 million people. Nigeria is got. It's just a big, thundering country right now. And uh, I can only have nothing but good memories of drinking palm wine or of driving from uh, Zaire to uh, Benin City Um, because when I got back to Benin City, the the adult people said, they got in the line, they said, welcome back, but I'm from Nigeria, but I won't drive that far. You know, you should be very careful while driving in Nigeria. And although they were true, um, that was the young, you know, spirit in me, you know, and plus that's where my in-laws were, who were my most important people in Nigeria. So that's why I drove from Benin City up to Nigeria, passing through Kwara State and many other northern states uh, to get to Kaduna. Now,
0: Mm -hmm. honestly, you had, you know, a a wife who was Nigerian, albeit born in the USA, but she's Nigerian. Her parents, her family are from Nigeria. Do you think that obviously helped in terms of you making your transition to Nigeria? Because it wasn't as if you was going there, for example, and you know you didn't have those kind of connections because you was almost that like you was you had a partner a wife you know that's, that that had the um, the her family was Nigerian and also friends etc. So um, how useful was that in terms of giving you a soft landing when you went to Nigeria?
1: Oh, that was the soft landing. Having a Nigerian wife is the soft landing in getting into Nigeria, and also having the the ability to learn broken English because. Once you get in school, once I got in school, my first day in class, three boys in one corner said, who he think say he be? What are now uh American or Jamaican? And I said, you three guys, get them out, come out outside, right here, come out and I called them down to the uh, where I was teaching uh, to the podium. And I and I instructed them, I said next time no broken in class. And they said, ah. You could hear a hush go over the classroom. He understand broken, old, In other words, everybody quiet down because everybody knew. The rules said in Nigeria, you cannot speak broken English in school.
0: Something that I, I want to talk about now in terms of Nigeria, I haven't been to Nigeria. I've been to Ghana, which is, I'm sorry, Gambia, which is another country in Africa. And yes. from what my experience and what others have experienced of going to different African countries, um, particularly in West Africa, is that you know they they're very um, nice, hospitable. They're very welcoming, but they don't quite understand you know our plight as you know people of African heritage, descendants of enslaved Africans in the diaspora. Um, Whether that is the experience in the diaspora, but how we're connected to Africa in terms of, you know what, when you're looking at, you know, slavery and it was our ancestors taken away and now we are coming back and they can't see the connection and we're often just looked at as, you know what, Americans or... Europeans or Jamaicans or whatever, but not necessarily Africans. But they will respect us as human beings, but not necessarily see us as as African. I was on TV in
1: Nigeria often. So again, I was really treated like a homeboy. I was treated well. And A lot of times they would look at me, they wouldn't be able to figure me out until I spoke. And if I spoke in American English, I said, yeah, it's a better fit. But but what I um, found in Nigeria was the country that was uh, learning more about the Black populations. And so Nigeria now projects that 40% of Americans who were enslaved, African-Americans, came from Nigeria. They also came from Gambia uh, because... I spoke to uh, Alex Haley, and Alex Haley was the one whose family was able to keep the language Gambi Belongo as their hometown while in slavery six generations. So that's why he wrote the book uh, Roots. And again, a lot of that's helped to bridge the gap among people who read, Uh, but people who don't read needs to still uh, look at more than uh, than some of the junk that the West pumps out. Because... We do have a relationship as African people, but we won't know it unless we get there. And again, I saw African culture. I've been told by an American Indian here that if we go to Africa, they won't even let us into their culture. And I said to him, that's a lie. Because when I got there, the first thing my father-in-law said to me was, he said, even though you've been married to my my daughter for three years, he says that uh, in my village, we would they would not be satisfied unless you come and do the native law and custom marriage with my daughter there. And so that we immediately, we made that the first, one of the first things that we would do. So again, the Africans welcomed me into their family uh, in very many ways, welcomed into the school, welcomed into the city of Benin City. And so I have nothing but pleasant memories about that time. You know, there's always, in traveling, a few ups and downs. In uh, Nigeria, it's rough, but it's also sweet. rough and sweet. And I tasted those flavors um, deeply while I was there. And I say to the people of Nigeria, thank you for welcoming me. Thank you for treating me well. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you for letting me have a chance to teach in your school system. What I want to know is... Did you feel
0: that you was privileged like, when you was in Nigeria? because this is what some people say as well? Some people say that you know when they 're in the Western world, say like United States of America or England, for example, they're treated you know at the bottom of society as a as a black man, regardless of you know whatever your job title is, et cetera. The fact is you know you're you're black you 're at the bottom of the ladder, and then sometimes when they go into these African countries they're then treated put towards the top and they're treated in kind of like a privileged status. Did you feel that in Nigeria or did you feel that you was just, you know, as a as a a, a commoner?
1: I, I felt like um, I was being treated special uh, because everybody knew who spoke to me that, I, of course, as soon as you hear me speak, you know, I'm from another country. But the many people I'm looking at over there are looking like us. It's surprising how when I went to Atlanta, I almost spoke broken English to some African-Americans because... In Georgia, they look so much like Nigeria, the people from Georgia, the African Americans in Georgia. So I've visited all over the USA. And, and what I feel is that there's no other place than West Africa where we could go and feel as free and as close to home. Because even when I look at you, I, I see some of my brothers, cousins, and friends, you know, because we have such a variety of looks. And we were always told in America, everybody in Africa is dark black. And Africa have as much diversity in its population as we African-Americans do. And so that's the thing is, I'm so happy I went to Nigeria so that I could see and love that diversity and love that uh, the love that I was given in Nigeria. Many times I would go to an event, a traditional event, and say, "Hey, we have an African-American with us. Let's give him a hand. You know, I was treated with special love. And that was because um, I felt when the Nigerians understood where I came from, they had a special uh, sympathy saying, oh, we wish you had not having to go over there. We wish you could have stayed here, you know? So Nigeria was a wonderful country, but also Since it had oil, it was doing pretty well, and it was popping. And they used to have a lot of late-night Nigerian parties, and I loved them, me and my wife.
0: Oh, wow. And the thing I want to talk about now is how empowered you felt as a black person in Nigeria, because I've got loads of friends that are from Nigeria, and I've dated women that are Nigerian. Now, when I've spoken to some of my friends that are Nigerian, and they've said to me... um, particularly two friends um one of them um said to me you know nigeria it's with all respect to respect to some other african countries but it's not like other certain other countries in africa because everything there is like primarily like black owned black people dominate the economy they dominate the society it's not like other african countries where white people asian people lebanese are like running things within that kind of country that's what he was explaining that It's it's a truly black empowered um, place to be on all different aspects and levels there is that white people can't come in there and, and run things that they do in certain other countries and other other, other foreigners. And then I remember yeah. another friend that was talking to me um and he recently went to Nigeria and he was telling me he went to this uh beach um in Nigeria and he was like, you know, he went there and he said you not all Nigerian, you're not the um, he, was, he said he was like he's a bit older like Uncle Age he said like he was on like the old him and his wife were like the oldest there but he was like everyone was on the beach having a good time it was just all black people and he couldn't see one white person in sight all black people and spending money you know what the economy was there and it's like he was saying this is why Nigeria doesn't have to you know be concerned about tourism like some other African countries because it's like when he saw that the money was there and the, the way that they're spending it, it's just a beach of, of, full of black people all having a good time without no white person in sight so uh, how how empowered did you feel as a black person in Nigeria?
1: I feel greatly empowered. One of the things I remember is walking down the streets of Lagos, and you can look and you can look for almost a mile, and you can you you see long streets, long boulevard, and you see very few white people. Now whites are there, and, and Nigerians get along with them somehow, um, but they're not empowered. Uh, Nigeria, every business you see is it would say father and son, uh, this family or that family, you know, but they, they have the businesses. Nigerians have the businesses as well um, as the, uh, the streets because you have those big old long Mercedes and then you have the motorcycles and you have, I mean, you just have, I remember being woken up by AIT, that's African independent television. That's when I came back in 2005. And uh, I had an interview at African uh, international television. So that my my friend sent a ride and picked me up and I rolled all the way through Lagos. And it was like six o'clock in the morning. The whole place is up. Nobody's going to sleep. Everybody's walking toward their job or where they're going to be trading. I just remember that Nigeria is a very busy place and uh, people are up early they're walking they're talking they're doing things you can buy a soda in the street if your taxi slow down you know I mean it's just an incredible place and you won't see another experience like that unless you go there and you will be able to look down the street and see a thousand black people I mean it's the only country that where you can see a thousand black people you can you will just see and feel empowered and you will be empowered
0: Well, it sounds nice. Nigeria, for those who don't know, is the country with the highest Black amount of people in the world in terms of population. Um, Now, did you feel um, you grew as a person from your own personal development by going to Nigeria?
1: Yes, because by seeing so many Africans who looked like me or who looked like cousins or looked like brothers and sisters, I knew we were one people. I, that's one feeling I got from being in Africa and it also allowed me to love myself more because I can see where we came from had an organized history. I mean, they have street lights in Nigeria, just like they do in America. So all of that stuff about Africa being behind goes out the window as soon as you get off the plane. And of course, the jet you get off of is going to be a real jet. It's not going to be a play jet. So I found Nigeria to be very real. And then to be very honest, because they have oil, but they know. Uh, like I remember riding from Benin City up to um, uh, up to Zaria, and then seeing Bob's mine, John's mine, another another, you know uh, Johnson's mine. Three different mines, and just in that one area that I was traveling in. So they have a lot of minerals still going to America, coming out of Africa in general and Nigeria in particular. So Africa is very rich and America has lived on it for 500 years, including living on our efforts as African and descendants, uh, African people who lived in America after being kidnapped from Africa. So yes, uh, everybody has something golden to learn when they go to Africa, especially when they learned that the people still look just like us and we still look just like home. And so um, my late wife, she had a brother. She had three brothers. Uh, one was uh, dark chocolate like me. Another one was in the middle of us three. Then she had another brother that was uh, like a very light-skinned guy. You know, So Africa still has that variety. And we have so much to learn from Africa about ourselves as African-Americans. Because if we don't know yourself, you can't know anybody else. If you don't love yourself, it's going to be hard for you to love anybody else. And so those kind of self-building characteristics happen when you go to Nigeria and say, ah, my people can do this. Wow. And that's what Nigeria is. It's fantastic.
0: Now, you left Nigeria in 1981. Um, and obviously, you, you came back to USA because your your wife's illness, etc. Um, your late wife, who passed away, now had you um, visited Nigeria since eighty one, and or and would you consider returning to Nigeria at some point?
1: Well, I tell you, I did um, go back to Nigeria two thousand five, two thousand six, and I remember being on African Independent Television, and I have not been on. African independent television or any other program here in America, because America they don't let African-Americans into the media, especially if they don't uh, judge them to be pro-American. And so, and that's, that's the big, I mean, I'm not pro-American. I'm pro-African. I'm pro-African American. So I understand the, the dynamics of that, but I believe that, um, our people have left our roots in Africa, just like eating black eyed peas. Um, man, that was in the slavery time after slavery was over. Black eyed peas was the favorite meal of the slaves after they became liberated. Where did black eyed peas come from? Google said they come from West Africa. And I used to eat Moi Moi all the time when I was in Nigeria. I loved it. I would go straight there after school and eat there, uh, eat there at the place that had served Moi Moi. And then by the time dinner time come home, I'm ready to eat my wife's dinner. So I know that we have roots in Africa and people in Africa look just like us. And if I hadn't gone there, I wouldn't have known that. And so I thank God for my experience there going to Africa. I also thank God for my wife because she led me uh, and she was uh, she knew the language. She could speak Yoruba. She could speak Igbo. She could uh and then uh, she even taught me a few words in Hausa. Uh, and those words ended up helping me out in my life. So I, I just know that whether you're in the north or south of Nigeria, you're going to see people who look like us. And and that's the most important thing for us to see as African-Americans, because we don't uh, we still have the image The white man painted in our mind that everybody in Africa is jet black and dark and everybody in Africa, uh, you know, doesn't like African-American. No, no. We are the most, some of the most popular black people in the world, but we won't know it unless we visit Nigeria.
0: How important is it for people of African heritage, particularly those living or born in the diaspora um, that have never been to Africa, to visit Africa or to live on the continent?
1: I think it's vitally important because then you begin to legitimatize who you are and where your people came from. Because there's so much confusion. Like now in America, um, during slavery, we had so many of our people married Native Americans because they were the only ones that would be allowed to marry us. And so some of us have a little bitterness of Native Native American blood, but we are 95% African You know, so that's where the predominance of our skin color and our uh, culture comes from. But in America, Africa is put down. And so they think every time, well, but I got something else in me as though that's more than what Africa has in you. No, we have to be proud of our African roots. And and going to Africa is the best way to, to become proud of your African roots. Because if you've never seen Africa, you've never felt it. Uh, You've never gone through a police checkpoint where they say, oh, God, nobody you we see for TV. I beg, paso, paso. If you don't see that, then you won't know, oh, when I do go to Africa, people are not going to be against me. So that's why I say if you get a chance in your life, you go to Ghana, you go to Gambia, you go to uh, Cameroon, go to any of those countries. Um, But be aware of what they're going through presently when you go, because sometimes white men are still manipulating old wars. Like for instance, in Cameroon, where my late wife's uh, friend was from, now they have big problems with the between the, the, Af- the Africans who speak French and the Africans who speak British. And so, and at one point that could have been a part of Nigeria, but they chose to go and be a part of Cameroon. So now that issue has really bad consequences uh, with people, you know, actually dying. So you have to watch where you go. But you have to know uh, where you go that's comfortable. And you need to uh, look at your motherland that if if not for the manipulation of the colonialists, then everybody wouldn't be speaking different languages, uh, like uh, Dutch and or or French or, you know, all of that. But that was part of the way they took over Africa from the time they sat down in 1885 in Europe and Germany and made a plan to take over all of Africa and different language groups took it over. So they've sometimes manipulated Africans to be against each other. And we Africans got to watch out for that too. We African-Americans got to watch out for that too. Because if we don't ever empower ourselves completely, we'll always be under colonialism. And the only way out of colonialism is for us to empower each other and empower our people and each people empower each other. Like Marcus Garvey, he wanted the Black Star Line to bring trade between African-Americans and Africans. And of course, the U.S. government stopped him. But that doesn't mean he he wasn't doing the right thing. He was doing the right thing. Let us continue trading ideas. Let us continue trading love. Let us continue trading travel. You know, let us continue learning African culture like I did when I learned about the native law and custom marriage, uh, as opposed to the American marriage. Both have their value, but if you don't know the African value of a traditional marriage and the difference between an American marriage, then you don't know your culture. And what I found out is that the Africans don't believe in divorce traditionally. And maybe now there's a little bit more divorce. But traditionally, when the native law and cancer marriage happens, the parents and the family tell you, if our daughter do something wrong, bring her back to us and we can talk about it. Just don't divorce. And so that's the African custom. And we will never know that unless we go to Africa.
0: You're listening to The Black Book Show with and Sankofa, myself, host, speaking to author Larry Yakali Johnson read and Larry has been speaking about his book called Journey to the Motherland from San Francisco to Benin City we're going to be uh well I'm going to be talking to Larry about his second book in a moment but before I do that Larry can you uh please tell the listeners where they can purchase your book remind them again the title of the book and where it can be purchased before we go on to speak about your next book
1: okay um, Journey to the Motherland, like my other five ebooks, can be uh, purchased at Amazon.com Kindle. So if you go to Amazon.com Kindle and then you put in Larry Ukali Johnson Red, it will go to my author's page. And from there, you can select any one of my six ebooks, including Long Distance Love, my second trip to Nigeria, where I got uh, into it with a 419. And ended up <laughs> ended up in a pretty bad state for a minute. So that was. But you go down there, and then you can also go to my website, Larry Ukali and that's L A R Y U uh, K A L I Johnson Red R E D D dot com. And then you can go to my books page, and it has a link to my author's page on uh, on Amazon.com, dot So you have those two ways you can get any of my books.
0: So we're going to go on now to speak about uh, your second book. Of course, Larry has written multiple books, but we're going to concentrate on these particular two books. We've already heard him speak about Journey to the Motherland from San Francisco to Benin City. Uh, We're now going to be, I'm now going to be speaking to Larry about his book, Letter to My Young Brothers and Their Parents. Uh, Larry, please, can you start by giving a summary of the book, Letter to My Young Brothers and Their Parents?
1: Yes, this book, Letter to My Young Brothers and Their Parents, is um, an effort by an educator uh, to spread success among African American and other um, students around the world who want to learn. Uh, And so, what I do is I go through my learning techniques for all four levels of education that is, um, from K through 12. And that is, is inclusive of chapter one for elementary school, chapter two for middle school, chapter three for uh, high school and chapter four for those who are contemplating dropping out of um, high school. And the reason for that is that this book is supposed is. It's meant, it's comes from my heart, but it's meant to show people how to learn, how to get educated, and how to be successful, and how to to be successful by still, but still love yourself. And so the book, Letter to My Brothers, is a response uh, to a study by uh, Harvard and UCLA. Um, It it was a a multi-year study, and what they wanted to find out was what were the chances of success of young black boys in America? And their conclusion was the young black boys in America have the worst chance of success in the world. And so my book was written in part to respond to that study and also to give new learning techniques to my people. And some of the learning techniques is, if you go to my Facebook page now, you'll see it's called Well, what it does is it tells you how to get ready for the new school year. August 1st is coming up. So we're gonna have a new school year. What do you do? You go, if you were in the 10th grade, you go to the 11th grade on Google and download words and definitions for all of the classes you're gonna have. So that you go into the class with the new vocabulary and not go into class wondering what words are needed to make it in that class. Because you will learn those words if you prepare before the semester starts, that's just one of my learning techniques. But I, when I did come back to America, I did go back to school and get my second master's degree. My first master's degree is in um, yeah, public administration. My second master's degree is in uh, um, masters of education and also um, your administrative credentials. So I, you know, I became a legal principal. High school principal. So these are the learning techniques I've learned all along the road. And I've also noticed because, you know, in African Americans, we have uh, a broken English, kind of like Nigeria's. But most of the kids know that one airtight, real tight. But they don't always get into the academics of school. And then you get into the history of our people that at one point we couldn't even. Uh, we couldn't even uh, read. Uh, we would be beaten if we were caught reading. So when you look at that history, and you wonder what is the tremendous effect now. Uh, some people just don't want to have anything to do with the white man's education. Some people are just feeling like uh, even if we get the diplomas uh, or degrees, we're still going to be racially um, you know, targeted. And, and so much of that is true in, in America today. So this book will help a student who's in the first grade up until the 12th grade to have techniques to learn the words and definitions and to learn what they need to do to graduate. Because that's the principle of the book is graduate in elementary school, graduate in middle school, graduating high school. And sometimes in America, we've had as low as a 50% graduation rate among black men. And if you notice, the mass incarceration is waiting for you if you don't have your high school diploma, and uh, and the America has it all worked up and geared up, and that's why you have more than a million people in prison, um, way more, and mostly black men are imprisoned. So we wanted to give something to them, even if the brother's in prison, he could read this book called Letter to My Young Brothers and learn more about education and how to become education, how to become educated and the value of education by reading this book from a Black perspective. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this book coming forward.
0: How important is it that we focus on the development of our young brothers and give them guidance?
1: It's so important because um, right now uh, we have more young brothers fighting with each other uh, than fighting with the system. And so if you don't fight against the system, then you're going to become more of a part of it. But what we have to do is to be able to learn to read. First of all, to be able to read our own history. Um, African-Americans need to read books, Uh, by Kwame Nkrumah and all the other brothers and sisters in in the motherland, just like the brothers and sisters in the motherland need to read books about us so that we can learn more about each other and come together as a people. Um, So this book will help to to give you value for your education, to give you um, specific ways to get your education. I have a um, five-paragraph essay format that I have developed in the classroom. This, if you read it, you will be able to write a five paragraph essay uh, pretty well. Um, also, this book has, uh, um, has you know, the words, um, the words of all of the uh, operations like subtraction, multiplication, division, and all of the words that go along with it so that you couldn't be able to learn math. Again, another secret to learning is to be motivated. and. So in this book, uh, chapter two says school is cool. That's the, it's a I got a spoken word piece there. So, cause I combine spoken word and poetry along with, uh, with my educational um, tips. And this one is called Close the Gap. Don't sit back. Don't sit in the back and yap, yap, yap. Bridge the gap, move to the front. Don't sit in the back and yap, yap, yap. Bridge the achievement gap. Don't act like you don't know how to act. When you can close the gap. And what's the gap? The gap is the, uh, the difference between the learning going on by uh, whites and everybody else, you know, or whites and blacks. Because, see, in American curriculum, you have hardly very little mention of African Americans. And that's part of the problem. And so a lot of people say, well, since they don't have my history, I'm not interested in learning that white man's history. And, and that doesn't lead to progress. So we want you to know about your history, know about other people's history, know about what you need to read, know about your culture, know about uh, where the world is now and open your eyes and get the, do the best job you can of learning so that you will be able to take care of your family when you get grown.
0: Why should parents be involved in reading this book before or after school with their sons or family?
1: Well, because in African-American households, we do need to have more structured time and we do need to have um, more uh, family time doing uh, educational assignments as well as partying and everything else. So I'm not saying we shouldn't live, but we need to uh, focus on our education uh, just so that we can get to the progress we need. I remember my mother telling me when I was in school misbehaving one day, she said, we got to get twice as far to go half as, uh, to progress half as much as the others. And, so, and that situation existed when I was growing up 60 years ago, and it still exists right now. So an African-American has to get twice as much education to make half as much progress. And if we don't then we continue filling up the jails. We continue being members of mass incarceration, you know, victims of mass incarceration. And we continue having trouble and a challenge to live in America.
0: I'm trying to think, now about possible solutions. I mean, some people have, due to frustration of education, not just in USA, even in, you know, um, in England, um, have taken their children out of, you know, the racist system and, and, and decided to homeschool their children um as an alternative. And um I was wondering Indian. what 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 you think on homeschooling.
1: Yeah, many African Americans are doing homeschooling now too. I'm as, a, as my first assignment, I was in a classroom in the bottom of the Pan African People's Organization in uh, 1974. And we had a, a independent school. So um but that school didn't it, it didn't it didn't thrive. Um, But there are thriving schools, um, African-American schools all over America where people are teaching their children. And and so that's important. But most students in America go to public schools and the public schools have discrepancies, um, rich white schools, poor black schools, you know. But no matter what school you're in, it's up to you to be motivated to make progress in that school and to graduate. And that's the challenge I put before all of the young uh, Black boys in this uh, in this book uh, so that they won't be overcome with grief when they hear the greatest university saying uh, they have no chance of success in life. Uh, then we got to bring our own encouragement to the table. And if a brother reads this book, even a sister reads this book, they're going to learn how to learn better and they're going to be more motivated because this book is all about Motivation as a preparation for education.
0: With all the obstacles, you know, Black youth and even Black adults face in America, do you think that our people should relocate to Africa and be amongst people who look like us in an environment we, where uh, we don't have to worry about racism and that Black people are more empowered in the society?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> I think that's going to be a hard sell, uh, to African-Americans now because they don't know as much about their homeland as I do. Um, but I think that they can eventually learn that as because there are now, like I said, more than a thousand African-Americans in Ghana and people are starting to be going to places like Tanzania and Gambia, you know, so it's becoming a, more of a thing as we get um, more mature and clearer in our understanding of where our roots exists in Africa. So we're gonna get there, but we're gonna have to prepare ourselves better now. And just because uh, they have this thing in America where all of the black communities are getting pushed out. Um, San Francisco, where I come from, used to have about 80% black home ownership in my neighborhood. And now you can barely find 5% of my people in in my old neighborhood because they are bringing other people in mostly white and they're pushing us out. So we have that challenge. And of course, if they ever really, well, a white man would never really wanna push blacks out cause he makes so many profits on it. But if we ever got our mind together and said, hey, I could do better in Africa than I can do here. Uh, then yes, that, that would become a, fee, a big threat to the philosophy of white America. But it would be a common sense for us.
0: Well, thanks, Larry, for joining us on the Black Book Show. We're coming to the end of the interview now. So please give us your final comments and tell the listeners um, where they can purchase your books and the the title of your your two books that you've spoken about this evening.
1: Okay, so I've spoken about uh, Journey to the Motherland. And this is an essential book for you to understand where we fit in the African world, uh, what branch of the family tree is ours. So we need to read this book. And again, you can download it in five, five, 10 seconds. If you go to amazon.com, Kindle. Um, And again, it will give you a trip to Africa for four years to show you all the things I went through. And then my newest book, Letter to My Young Brothers and Their Parents, It's about establishing a family read. It's about reading about success. It's about pushing the kids to succeed in school. And it's about giving tips that um, we can learn to help us become more motivated. And again, these books are available. Um, And if you go to LarryUkaliJohnsonRed.com, you'll be able to get the information on all of my books.
0: You're listening to The Black Book Show on Galaxy Afiwi Station. I'm host San Sankofar. I'm also author of the books The Rise of Rastafari, Resistance, Redemption and Repatriation. And I'm author of the book Life in Gambia, The Smiling Coast of Africa. Now, I was recently interviewed about my book The Rise of Rastafari on a radio station in the Gambia. And I'm now going to play that interview that I had with Abdullah Jing of me speaking about The Rise of Rastafari. You know what?
2: What gives you the motive? You know, so about
0: that. I think it was one thing was frustration. I mean, myself, I've been I've been a Rasta since I've been about twenty twenty one. So for ten years now, and uh, I mean, when I see people that look at rastafari, like say, whether it's in Africa, or even a diaspora, and they like think of it in such a negative way, or they don't have a, a, a knowledge on the topic, and for me, it was to give you know an authentic, um, for people to give, get an understanding of what it is. Because when you say to most people, what is Rastafari, they will say, oh, they think someone in locks, someone that smells ganja, um, someone who maybe listens to Bob Marley music and eats vegetarian food. Yeah. So, to it's, 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 me, it's really a travesty and a shame that Rastafari has looked in that way. And it's also what the, the book is, to, to give people the, the correct understanding of the movement And also to get people to identify more with it, not necessarily to convert people, but for them to, you know, have a deeper understanding in terms of seeing the connection, particularly uh, whether they're on the diaspora or on the continent, but see how it connects to themselves as, you know, as as an African person. Um, One of the main um, focal points of Rastafari is identity. And I think this is if if people knew what Rastafari would have stood for. Particularly in terms of you know, African identity, I think more people would associate with it, even not necessarily call themselves, but it would have a lot more respect for the movement. And, and if you look at, say, the contributions that Rastafari has played, which I highlight in the book, for example, like um, in terms of, a lot of people from the diaspora wouldn't have repatriated to Africa had they not been influenced on some kind of levels with Rastafari, whether it's the music, whether it's, you know, they've had a parent or family member, or whether it's just the fact that Rastafari has done so much in terms of the diaspora in Really promoting Africa, that there was a time where you know, even still to this day, a lot of people in the diaspora they're still under the depression, you know, scared of going to Africa. They think Africa's a jungle, they think it's mud hut, they think all of these kind of negative things which have been you know, passed down into their head for the last 400 years from slavery and then colonialism. So, Africa, particularly for those of us of Caribbean heritage, Africa was always looked at in a negative way. When I say Caribbean heritage, so my dad is African, but I'm talking, I was raising my mom's family, which is Jamaican, so I'm talking on that side now. Africa was always, even when I was at school, always seen as as negative and stigmatised and, you know, just seen seen as as, as inferior to Europeans. So what we as Rastafari have always done is say that we should be proud that we're African, we should look towards going back to Africa, repatriate to Africa. And we should, we should be proud of whether it's our hair, colour or skin texture, but we effectively should be proud of our Africanness and acknowledge our, our, our roots and, and recognise that we came from Africa before our, our ancestors were taken to, you know, the, the Jamaican other parts of the Western world. They came from Africa and reconnected to Africa. And I think that's a big part of um, Rastafari that people overlook. When people think of Rastafari, as I said before, they will just think of, you know, someone that's got, that, that's got locks on smoking, but they don't understand... How it relates in terms of what it means in terms of identity and Pan Africanism, because effectively, as Rastas, we are Pan Africanists. You cannot take Pan Africanism out of Rastafari. Okay. So,
2: so actually, what you're trying to tell us, uh, Rastafari is, is a Pan African movement. Yes. You know, like uh, so many people in the Gambia, yeah? uh, especially in Africa, you know, when you talk about Rastafari, you know, what they think about is about death mm-hmm. So, you know. When they see people having dreadlocks, when you say Rastafari, and they also ask the Rastafari, with so many negative things about it's about smoking ganja, and, and stuff like that. So in, in so many families, even the parents, when they see you having you know dreadlocks, like you or you call yourself as a Rasta, as a Rastaman, you know, people you know tend to look you as, as a negative person in the society. I
0: just want to as well in terms of dispelling you know, some of the misconceptions because you mentioned dreadlocks. Now many Rastas do have dreadlocks. I used to have dreadlocks as well one time. Yeah. But what people don't understand is the original rustlers, the people that started the movement, didn't have dreadlocks. Yeah, So that's something as well that people don't often like, because people are very ignorant and they don't have the understanding. So the, the the dreadlocks didn't really come into like the mid-50s. And, and even in the 60s, it was still common for a lot of rustlers to not have dreadlocks. Like even when Haile Selassie visited Jamaica in um, 1966, a lot of rustlers then didn't have, dread, have locks. And like going into like the Coral Gardens Massacre in 1963, some did, but some didn't. And this is why, um, in, in 1963, when there was a big incident that happened in Jamaica, um, the, the, the Jamaica Gleaner was a newspaper, they said that they arrested 150 beardsmen, because at the time they identified a lot of arresters by having beards and not necessarily locks. Mm-hmm. So um, the locks rarely came in when, in Kenya, and again, they connecting again with Africa, because a lot of these things come from Africa. So in time, the Kenyans were fighting to get independence, um, mm-hmm. the Mau Mau's, from mm-hmm. the British, yeah, they start their hair leg in, in locks because they were fighting the war. They was like we're not going to cut our locks until we not we get our freedom. The Jamaicans then saw the image of the Malma warriors um, in their locks, and obviously they were fighting against colonialism and etc. So they then copied that from the Malma warriors. So again, when you, again connecting with Africa, if you look at the the movement as a whole, um, whether it is parts of the culture or Haile Selassie himself, Haile Selassie is an emperor from Ethiopia, connected to Africa. Um, you have a group on the Rasta called the Baba Shanti, yeah. The Shanti tribe is in Ghana. A lot of the Shanti were taken to Jamaica um, during the slave trade, yeah. So there's a connection between, you know, what the Ghana, this particularly the Shanti tribe and a lot of the um, Maroons and, and the people that resisted slavery came from that Shanti, which is a subgroup of the Akan people in Ghana. But the Baba Shanti, they call themselves after after um, the Shanti. Uh, Bob Ashanti, after you know that Shanti tribe in and they believe they had l- lost Ashanti. Again, the reconnection with Africa. Naya is another Rastafari group. Naya is a movement in Uganda, Rwanda, against fighting against colonialism, and there was a queen called Queen Mahamusa. Called Queen Nayabingi, So, that group Nayabingi is named after a queen, a warrior queen from Uganda, Rwanda. Really? So, there is a, again, there's a lot in terms of the connection with um, Africa and Pan Africanism that I don't think, even like the drumming, for example, like the Nayabingi or the Congo drumming, that's inspired, that's coming from Africa. That's, that's the inspiration. So, as a movement, we're really saying that it's all about the reconnection with Africa. So, in terms of the context of how the movement evolved, you have 400 years of You know, enslavement of African people that were taken from places like the Gambia, you know, and other parts of West Africa and Central Africa, to you know, the Caribbean and other and America, Brazil, etc. But I'm going to focus on the Caribbean, particular Jamaica, because that's where the movement arose. Yeah. So you're looking at um, after slavery, um, there was not the the slaves. They were still um, sorry, the people in Jamaica. They still had uh, British colonialism. Yeah. So. For the last 400 years, they've been taught that they were inferior to white people and that, you know, things that European were good and the things that Africa were bad and negative, yeah? And a lot of our minds, a lot of the people in the Caribbean, they still had that mindset, that colonized mindset, yeah? So the the reason why the rest of Movement started was that what they, the, the, the people that founded him, like um, Leonard Howell, Joseph Hibbert, Robert Hines, Wood Dunkley, they were trying to free the minds of black people and following them for a lot of them were Garvey like it's coming out of Marcus Garvey's organization. Now, even though Marcus Garvey wasn't a raster, a lot of the, you know, the philosophy is in line with with Garveyism in terms of, you know what, nation building, being independent, self-sufficient, and black people united. A lot of that is basically um, also principles of, of, of the Rastafarian movement. But it was a very important time in terms of change, trying to change the mindset of our people. And that's what the early Rastas were trying to do. They were trying to say that it's not about worshipping the, the, the King of England anymore. So when Haile Selassie was crowned Emperor of Ethiopia in 1930, they was like, you know, this is a king that we can look towards. He's from Egypt from Africa. And we don't need to worship, you know, the British monarch anymore because we've got our own king in Ethiopia, Africa. And it was to say that we as a people, we must come out of, you know, worshipping or demonizing things Western and things white, and we should start to look within ourselves. And we, you know, we should have unity and and love to our other black love amongst our own people, and that we should be, you know, look to. to prosper and, and build and build a nation. So this is the, the the reason why it started is because there was a need. A lot of people in the Caribbean had never seen the image of a black king before until Haile Selassie. They saw Haile Selassie. So what that did was give a reconnection and a memory that we have a history before slavery. Because black people in the Caribbean, all they thought was you know slavery. That's like their history started at slavery. So that was a key part in terms of making black people understand that you know some of us were kings and and queens. Yeah. And when Haile Selassie was crowned. It was really significant because all the other African countries have been colonized. Ethiopia, to this day, is still an African country that wasn't under colonial rule, whereas the other countries were colonized by Europe. So, what Ethiopia represented in Ali Sassi was, you know, African independence and the black man at its highest level, and 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 and, and you know, um, a, a proudness for for people of uh, black people in the diaspora. Yeah. So, uh, when we talk talking
2: about the, the Ghana for example. You know, we have still seen that Ganga is, uh, is seen as something illegal to smoke in, in, in the Ganga in Africa, in some
0: African countries. How does Ganga come to the Rastafari movement? So, ganja come actually, you know, into Jamaica by Indians. So, after slavery, they had indentured okay. Indians, um, which worked on plantation. Now, they weren't slaves, um, but they were working and they, they, they got paid, and the, the rights were different, but they obviously got, they got paid, but it's low pay. Um, and they had more rights than slaves, for example. So they weren't working against their own will. But because of the labour shortage, because of what the slaves that went off the plantation, um, they started getting these people from India to come over as indentured workers on the plantation. And when they come, they, insim- they dis- de- dissim- disseminate the ganja. They brought the ganja over to, into, into Jamaica. Yeah. So that's really how the ganja comes in. Now, Lennon Howell was the first raster... Uh, a lot of his friends were Indians, yeah? And he even had an Indian name, Gonguru Marat, a Hindu nickname. And there's a lot of influence on um, Hinduism in the, in the early inception of Rastafari, particularly with Lena Howe. But Lena Howe, he associated with um, a lot of um, Hindus. So they were used to seeing the Hindus were not like, smoke the Ganja, etc. So a lot of the, like Howe and other Rastas, they, some of them, they started to smoke Ganja because, you know, they it was they were influenced a lot by the Hindus. And that's really how a lot of the Ganja come in. But it's not to smoke, you know and then other things came in have came into it afterwards, but it's not to say you know what to just smoke ganja and that makes you a Rasta. It's not. It's not to. It's not a, smoking ganja. is not a principle of Rastafari. Do so you understand what I'm saying? It's yeah.
2: Something absurd.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's not. It's not something that you don't have to. A lot of Rastas. who don't smoke ganja. Yeah. Okay.
2: So how about like so many? I've seen so many. I, I do. You have to be a vegetarian to be a Rasta. So but no,
0: you don't. There's different um, factions and there's different. Groups of the rasta individuals, and this, I think, this is a big point that I recognise in my book because this people, people, what people seem to do is put rastafar in a bracket of like every rasta has to have lots, every rasta has to smoke garbage, every rasta has to be a vegetarian. So you have some rastas and some groups, yeah, um that operate a, a vegetarian or ital diet, and I want to explain the difference between ital and vegetarianism later. Some rastas are ital, some mm. rastas are vegetarian, some rastas are pescatarian, where they um, eat meat, but they don't. Eat, they don't. Um, so they eat fish, but they don't eat meat. Other other meats. Mm-hmm. So diet is different, but it depends on how and also what organization you're in. So, for example, like the Boba Shanti, there, which I'm not a part of, but they're a bit more um, strict to the dietary laws, and and and, and most people in Boba Shanti they, they don't eat uh, meat. But even uh, even if you spoke to a Boba Shanti man, and I've listened to like. Um, People in the organization, they wouldn't say that you know that's not a Boba Shanti just because he doesn't eat meat. Do you understand? It's more, I mean, just because he eats meat is more beyond that. But there are certain groups in Rasta and certain people that have more stricter dietary laws. Then you've got other organizations such as 12 Tribe where they meat is permitted. So it depends on the individual and also depending on you know what organization he's in, um, what 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 branch of Rastafari right is in, but. A lot of, of Rasta's do maintain a vegetarian or Aital diet, but it, 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 it varies. It's not to say that every Rasta has to do that.
2: Yeah, so still now, to can, can a white man be, be a Rasta father? Because we have seen some more white people with red flags, you know, who still call themselves as, as, as Rasta You know, you also have seen, uh, even in the Gambia, we have seen so many people, you know, having red flags, you know, and they more as white people. So, what, what do you think about that? Well, no. There's no such thing. My, there's no such thing as a white
1: rasta.
0: White people cannot be rasta. Just because someone have locks on their head doesn't make them a rasta. Well because you have people that have just locks, and they will even tell you they're not rasta. Rasta doesn't have the basically. Rasta has popularized locks more than any other group of people in the world. However, locks isn't a hairstyle which is exclusive to rasta. And rasta doesn't own any like rights to it because people had locks long before Rastas did. You have like ancient Egypt, you know, yeah, the pharaohs had locks. And I said, even the Mao Mao's and there's the warriors in Ethiopia. So locks has been an African hairstyle that's been... One for for centuries. It's not just something that you know it, that you know belongs Rasta. to to Rasta, but Rasta has popularized it more than other people. And I'm not saying it's not important to Rastafari, but I'm just explaining that it's not exclusive to to to, to Rastafari. And, and, and having locks doesn't make you a Rasta, because there's many people that have locks that are not Rasta. So um, yes, and, and and what I want you to say now in terms of you know white people, you know. What? The whole reason why the Rastafari movement came was for the liberation of black people. Um, and that the founders, such as Lena Howell, and there's even a part in my book where there's an interview with Catherine Howell that um, that I, I reference. And she and, and she was saying that, you know, her her father Lena Howell, who who's known as the first Rasta, what he was trying to do was preach liberation and salvation for black people. And that sums it up there and repatriation. Liberation. Liberation was for black people, you know, to free their minds from, you know, colonialism, white supremacy, that the, 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 the Babylon system, as we'll call it. Uh, the, the salvation was, was Africa and black people looking at, at divinity in ourselves. And then you have the um, four black people. that's a, Again, it was four black people. This movement was never started for people of all races and all backgrounds. It was a movement um, based on the, hist- the con- history and the context and the environment of particularly people Afri- Afri- people of African heritage in the diaspora, particularly Jamaica and they like gone through, you know, enslaved in uh, the ancestors were enslaved, particularly in the diaspora, you know what, to reconnect with our roots and to start looking to go to going back to Africa. It was never meant to be this one this movement of, you know, all groups of people all races. The whole the whole um, pe- people that came here yeah, for was people of African heritage. Yeah, particularly those that of us that were in the diaspora. So it's uh, kind to me. It doesn't make sense to have a white person to become a rasta because the They're it's
2: rem- not represent the interests of African.
0: That's yeah. what you mean. It, and they won't understand it to his fullness, because you see, they it's not their experience. The, the 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 rasta movement is birthed out of the experience of black people in the diaspora. So our experience is different than white um, white people. And it's like, how can the you know the descendants of the slave masters then become into a movement which was Created yeah. by, <laughs> yeah, by the descendants of the slaves because of the descendants of slave slaves. So when I see people white rusters go to reggae festivals or white rusters in places that so-called white rusters, you know In 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 Italy and all these other places, and I was like. This is what's part of the problem because those people are not connected to the genesis of the movement. And then what happens then is they don't receive from a black consciousness stance or because they can't, because they, 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 they can't identify with it, because they can't identify with the black struggle because that's not been their struggle. So then what happens is they gravitate to, say, a culture element. So they start to have locks because they see people in locks and they want to wear locks or they like wrestling into reggae music. This is why you see white people at reggae festivals. So what happens then is it's like a culture rape. It's like the, the black liberation, which is at the forefront of the movement, is pushed to the side, and then the, the white people have gravitated to a culture, and it's almost turned into this kind of hippie movement, yeah? And then that p- image of Rastafari is portrayed like this whole one love thing. And there's also a lot of black people as well that, 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 that don't see it from, that you know, the black liberation identity perspective and see it more just kind of like the cultural element. And that also gives a false, reputation, a, um, a rep- false representation of Rastafari in its true form.
2: Yes, exactly. And I think this is what is happening to Africa. You know, when I was young, uh, I when I told my people I want to have deadlocks, it's like they it's like entirely have happened in the family. It's like everybody was looking at why you have to, to carry deadlocks. Because it's the it's the misconcepts they have about Rastafari. And you know, they do not understand Rasta, people do not understand Rastafari is a pan African movement. You know, they I think also this also has to do with something with the West. You know, because the Rastafarian movement have been, you know, fighting against the, the West about uh, Africa for so much because they fought about, you know, colonialism and you know they struggle for independence for the liberation of, of black people, you know. So because of that, they put. It's just like how they put a, you know, a bar made about Africa. Africa is full of corruption. Africa, you know it's full of diseases, Africa is this, Africa is that. So, raster party also is being polluted by the same by the West because it was against the the movement of the West in Africa. So, that's that's the mindset. So, I, what I, think, I understand here, like, what we're talking about, like, being a raster is, is the mindset. It's not only about dreadful, it's not about smoking ganja, and then, I think it's the mindset only, that knowing that I'm an African and then, you know, being a pan african I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, definitely.
0: And I think you hit the head spot on in terms of our people. We still suffer um in inferiority complexes, but I think when you mention there anything that's that kind of like progressive, um, the Western world have got the way of putting a narrative, putting a spin on things. Yeah, and they will portray however they want things to portray in 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 the media. So. For example they've made Rastafari look bad or look negative um, just like you was referring to how they make Africa when people think of Africa to the Western world they make it you know the people starving and, and all the kind of bad things that they show for example to basically tarnish the reputation of Africa because Rastafari was such a progressive movement there's so many things that have been done to try to um, disrupt the movement from its early inception so if you're looking at even since the movement started in, the, in Jamaica in the 1930s, the 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 movement has gone through heavily, heavy persecution. Had it not gone through the persecution, um, it probably would have even reached would have reached higher levels of what it's on today. I would believe because in the night, again, when the movement started in that kind of mindset, um, colonial Jamaica, the, the the people, was you know, were were worshipping, you know, the King George, and they had all of these British values, and they didn't see themselves. And they saw themselves as British subjects, expected of Britain. That's why, in 1948, um, when the Windows generation came, the Windows generation, and a lot of people migrated from Jamaica and places on the island, they saw themselves as just British people. They didn't necessarily see themselves a lot of times Caribbean because they had a British passport. Yeah, and what, the kind of persecution that Rastafari has gone on over the years, you know, for for um, for propagating the saying that we should be proud of black and you know, for standing up for our for our, our rights as African black people. It's quite sad, even by our, you know our own fellow black people who persecuted Rastafari so much in Jamaica. Uh, Leonard Howe was the founder of Rastafari. He was put in prison so many different times because you know he was um, you know try, was, Rastafari's anti-system movement because he was against the you know against the system, and they tried to suppress it because they they saw it as something that could you know rise up the people, yeah, and get black people to be we could be free for ourselves. And he, he established in nineteen forty um, in nineteen forty one to nineteen fifty eight. They established Pinnacle in Jamaica now. For those who don't know, Pinnacle was the most self-sufficient community in Jamaica, yeah. And it housed thousands of distant rustlers, and some of them were farmers, some of them were craftsmen, but a lot of them, most of them, were all skilled people on the on the farm, yeah. Some of them, some of them, you know what, like sold ganja and stuff, but not not everyone did that. But a lot of people there were all kinds of skilled people, and they were they were I want to say wealthy, but they they, they had money, yeah, in, in in Pinnacle, and they used to you know to, um, go to the markets and sell their produce and etc. and they banked their own money in Pinnacle. Um, but, you know, the colonial government, they raided Pinnacle several times, and that's what caused the demise of Pinnacle, yeah? Because they didn't want this, you know, self-sufficient, prospering um, black community of Africans in colonial Jamaica, yeah? This is the reality. This is, in terms of, you know, even on in, 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 say, 1963, there's an incident called the Coral Gardens Massacre, where the prime minister Alexander Bastamante at the time, following the incident that happened in Coral Gardens... He said, Bring in all Rusters dead or alive. If the prison can't hold them, throw them on a cemetery, which means to kill them if necessary. Mm. So, Rusters, you know particularly in this area called Corrovanas, near Montego Bay, but throughout the island, even if you didn't have locks on, you just had a little beard or whatever, rounded up, taken to prison, some of them killed, some of them beaten up. Mm. So, there was a law in Dominica, even outside of Jamaica, called a dread law, where if someone had locks, you could shoot them on sight. So, Rastas who haven't had lots, and Rastas who have had lots, have been persecuted for different reasons. So, there's been a constant suppression in the movement. In England, in the 60s and 70s, when a lot of people come up as Rasta, a lot of their parents threw them out of the house, yeah? And these were, you know, these are not, it's not like, you know what I'm saying, white people are. Like, this is their own mum and dad, their own parents, their own black people. Most of the persecution that Rasta faced wasn't from white people, it was from black people, Yeah. That, mm-hmm. And so we've got a serious inferior conflict upon our people. The only movement, the only spirituality, which you know what, which says that you know God, God a king is black. The only spirituality where we look, we hail up a black king. The only um, the movement where we're looking towards going to Africa is the one we look down on the most. Is the one that is, is ostracized. Is the one that is persecuted. So I feel, I feel, and as, as, as a people, we have we. That shows the level of you know in inferiority we have and even the fact the lack of knowledge that we have on Rastafari. I'm not necessarily saying hair in the because I can understand why people might not know it hair because there isn't as access to information. But when I see people, particularly Jamaican people or people in the diaspora, particularly Jamaicans, yeah, who are proud Jamaicans who don't know anything on Rastafari more than certain things. And they're proud Jamaicans but they don't know the history of the Rastafari. Yet this movement was birthed out of the experience of people in Jamaica.
2: To me, that's a disgrace. No, of course. So, what uh, what uh, role does also the reggae music play in, 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 the, of, in the Rastafari in the movement? Because you know, we've we been listening to people like you know Bob Marley, you know people like Loki Dobby. These these are all very uh, important icons. You know, they they play a very important role also. You know, about, about African, like Bob Marley, for example, He's talking about African unity and you know talking about so many things about Africa. So, what important role do they also have been? Well, reg- reggae has played a crucial role in Rastafari. Particularly, Roots Reggae was birthed
0: out of by, by Rastafari. Yeah, and um, a lot of people's first, how they first may have been introduced into Rastafari would be through the reggae music. And, and the reggae has inspired a lot of people uh, throughout the world. Even just before we came on the station, before we came on the show, this is the Bob Marley. And people like Bob Marley, Bernie Spare, um, Gregory Isaacs, Dennis Brown. A lot of these reggae artists have influenced Pete, Peter Tosh all over the world in various different songs. Um, I mean, even the effect on the continent in, in, in Zimbabwe when they are fighting to get independence in Zimbabwe, it was the you know the um, the, the freedom fighters they were inspired by the, the music of Bob Marley, yeah, and to help them in the, in the, in their fight for freedom. When the um, West Indies cricket team went 15 years in Test cricket undefeated, um, one of the you know best sports teams in, in history. When, was, when Richards was the captain, he was saying that he was um, was inspired, you know, by the music of Bob Marley, etc. So the music inspired a lot of people. And even to chords coming into the continent, because a lot of the music is talking about, you know, repatriation and coming back to Africa. But, all, but whether it's repatriation or also just raising the consciousness levels of our people. I mean, a lot of people get inspired by, you know, the reggae music. And that has be, played a key role in um, spreading Rastafari. Right. And and spreading the the message of black liberation has been used as a vehicle to do that. So Rastafari has has been, uh, reggae music has been a very, very important role in Rastafari. And it still is to this day, um, a lot of the messages um, in reggae music which are portrayed. So if you look at, say, music like um, Peter Peter Tosh in in his song African, when he talks about, you know what, no matter where where you're born, whether you're, it doesn't. It does matter as long as you're, you know, you're a black man. You have the identity of an African. Yeah, I mean that, that's a that's a powerful song. At Bernie Spear. Um, there was a song you said when he said about slavery days and, and Marcus Garvey and a lot of people know about you know Marcus Garvey through through Bernie Spear and you know other reggae artists like Bob Marley for example. Bob Marley's one of the pro- arguably the most famous music singer in the, in the world. Because everywhere you go, someone knows Bob Marley and Bob Marley's a lot of his songs. You know, like. Um, get Up, Stand Up, Fighting fight for Your Rights, African Unite, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and songs like that. And, and um, I think, Rast- well, I, I know Rastafari, uh, reggae music, uh, particularly roots reggae music, definitely go hand in hand. And that's another contribution that Rastafari has made to the world. Because there's a lot of people that knock down Rasta and think low of Rasta, but love reggae music. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But reggae music wouldn't be anything if it wasn't for Rastafari. Because Rastafari is what made reggae music where it is, or what it is today. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So also in
2: your book, you talks about somebody about Mutabruka. You know,
0: you know, what do you mean about that? So Mutabruka is someone inspired me, because you know what? When I was coming into Rasta, when I was like in my early 20s, and I, when I listened to his, his views, and I watched his think, um, videos of him, and I listened to his views on Rastafari, and my views re- relate to Mutabruka because, you know, there is different ideologies in Rastafari, for example. So there are some people that see it as a religion, some people that see it as a, um, a Pan-African movement, some people that see it as a way of life. People do see it differently. So even, for example, my views of Rastafari, there are other Rastas who do look at it differently. And this is what I'm trying to say, is, for example, people have different views of Rastafari. But the view that I possess is also, um, there are many that believe in it as well, but there are people, just like in any anything else, you have people that have different ideologies within itself. But the way when Baruka explained Rastafari to me um, really resonated to me, and I really like you know the way he talked about it, you know, as as a as a liberation movement. And some are more into the same, for example, the biblical element to me. I never, I was never saw Rastafari as a religion. I, I always said it, you know as a as a liberation, a revolutionary liberation movement. And when I heard him talk about it, about you know identity and, and break down Rastafari, to me. That was that resonated with me as someone of Jamaican heritage, and, and and in terms of identity, and it was something that I I really ag- I, I agree with you know his the way he presented, um, Rastafari and explained it um, because there's many different and, and why I really like Muta because he's very vocal about it because there are many Rastas who have a different ide- who, who, who 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 have a different ideology and disagree and there's a thing in Rastafari where um, it, 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 there, there seems a general narrative which is a bit a lot of Rastas are very into the kind of the biblical narrative and one Rastas like myself Mutaburuk and others who are not in that biblical line and we're saying that no it, it is you know for us as African people for more we're Pan-Africanists there seems to be the, the biblical kind of stance is the one that's more pushed forth whereas Mutabaruka is probably one of the most known exponents of Rastafari certainly that have brought forth that, that, um, that notion that Rastafari is beyond the Bible
2: yeah, but uh, this is uh, one of the challenges also we face uh, as African people. You know, you know, Africa. We have different you know kind of religions. We have uh, Muslims. And we have Christians, and and if you also look at so many people see Rastafari as a as, as a way of African spirituality, and you know, it's like they they find it difficult for some people, you know, to, to adopt the, the, the movement. You know, with all the negative comments you know about 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 Rastafari. So, you know, what, what do you think we could do? How can we incorporate the idea of, of, of Rastafari? That's because we're living our Rastafari, we have to know it as, as a pan African movement. Or do you think that we need to just replant the name of, of Rastafari? Because when you see us say Rasta, you know, I know what it means in, in, in the minds of the people.
0: Yeah, good question. I think um, raising awareness is very important. So, like, stuff like this radio show, you know, when we went into schools and do lectures, um, I think just even like I mean, more places where people can go and it's teach them. Like I book the Rise of Rastafari, the Rise of Rastafari Resistance, Redemption, Repatriation. If anyone's listening, it's available in Timbuktu, if you're listening in the Gambia. But books like that, so people can get this kind of knowledge and information um, is important. What I would like to see is a lot more reggae artists come here and um, with the youths and talk about Rastafari and, and, and more just beyond the surface level because... When a lot of reggae artists come here, all they do is always, they just go they they sing and dance on stage and go back. And a lot of them are call themselves rasta, but do they put the time in to speak to the youth and say exactly what this is and what what you know what their what rastafari is and break it down to them? So I think a lot because the reason I said because reggae artists are influential and they're making their money off of rastafari, right? so. It's like on one hand they're making their money off of a right, but you have to give back then as well. You can't just make the money and go on the stage and da da da, and then you know you can do that in Gambia and then you can go to Italy and dance up in front of some white people and then it's the same kind of thing. So I think a lot of the reggae artists need to give back because they have influence. Like I, I'm quite known and people know me, etc. But to a Gambian here, I will have, will have no, I won't have as much influence as someone like certain big reggae artists that come here that are famous that are known that if they can go into the schools and like what I did, if they can talk about Rastafari, then maybe people can then, that will grow a, a much bigger, a pe- people to have a lot bigger understanding. So that's what I think um, one that could definitely be done. Um, if the interesting one about the brand and changing the, the name of it, because yeah, it's interesting because it's difficult because Rastafari does have a, uh, a lot of people do when they think of it, they think of it in a negative, negative way. So, you kind of come under the brand, obviously we are effectively Pan-Africanist, so you could just call yourself uh, a Pan-African, but then if you change
2: the but even if you look at that Pan-African, you know, like I have been talking to some people about Pan-Africanism, you know, I'll tell them that, you know, it is time for Africans to come together, it's time for us to unite, you know, it's time for Africa to look at the the future of Africa, it's time we take it in, in our own hands. But, you know, when you even talk to some companies about pornography, they say, oh, this is something, it has not been working. So, you know, it's just, just forget it. When you turn on pornography, they say, oh, forget it. That, that will not yeah. work. And so we, we find it difficult, you know, with some of these names, because it's like, they've the these names uh, was the Western world, you know, have, have put a negative
0: yeah. expression about
2: them. I think the thing going back, I want to answer that question as well, but the thing going
0: back to see Rastafari, the reason why it might be difficult, you can't just kind of name it and rebrand it because at the, there are certain things which make Rastafari what it is. So for example, at the focal point of it, of, of of the movement, is the acknowledgement of, of Haile Selassie? All Rastas praise Haile Selassie. Whether I'm not saying all Rastas seem as gone now. That's different because I'm because some Rastas see him as God. Some people just see him as a great king. Some people see him as an idol. So, but there must be some kind of that is what separates just a Pan-Africanist and a Rastafari because a Pan-Africanist doesn't necessarily have to see Rast- highly Selassie in the same way as Rastas do so we kind of, we idolise or worship, or some people worship or we idolise Haile Selassie so that is one key thing I think which makes Rasta Henson, he was Rastafari was before, he was called Haile Selassie, was called Rastafari so that can't really be moved I think that's a big, all the other things there are Pan-African but then changing the name I think would be problematic because that's something which makes, defines Rasta as, as it is the fact that, you know what the, at the at the main the center of the spirituality is highly is um is uh highly Selassie. Um, then there's also the other Pan-African things such as Black Unity and, and all those stuff which are going to be common as a Pan-Africanist. So I think changing the name might be a bit redefining it, and then I think redefining it would come into more kind of problems and more issues in terms of re- redefining something. Well, I think people need to just know exactly what something truly is, and be re-educating on the origins of it, and um, rather than going to something else, because then we go into something else, and there's more division, more divide. I think. So that's that's my take on that. In terms of yeah, what people think of Pan Africanism, you know, it's it's interesting because you know what, being on the continent, my, my eyes have opened, um, and my views on on things have opened up as well, and. Even, yes, Pan-Africanism is rare, is a diaspora in form. Um, and the fact is, the reason why I'm saying, even though I'm saying pan-Africanism, because basically it rose about in the diaspora, because Africans in the diaspora we put in one boat. So, when Af- Africans were taken from, you know, Gambia, or whatever, they weren't Africans, they were Wolof, Mandinka, they were whatever tribe they were. And they were taken, but when they were put on the slave boat, and when they were put in the, on the plantation, they were just put in one bracket. You're black, you're African, that's it. And in the diaspora, that's how it is. It's not like you know what the white man? It's not he doesn't see you as you know you're Ghanaian, you're Gambian. You're not oppressed because you're a Gambian and because I'm Jamaican or because I, you're just seen as you're black, you're African. We don't like you because you're black, you're African. So this unification and this concept of um, Pan Africanism, because a lot of us in the Caribbean and the diaspora, we didn't know what part of Africa we came from anyway. So we was just like we're just going to grab onto that kind of the whole African continent. And the way that we're treated is, you know what, all African and all black people are seen in one 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 kind of boat. So because we didn't know where we come from, and because all African people, we've been put together in kind of one bracket and one boat, and because of how, you know what, even on the continent how the the continent had been colonised and broken up, that's why this concept of really pan-Africanism and one-African unity came together, it came from the diaspora, and it's basically saying, based on you know what, the um, how we are discriminated against all just because we're African, because we're black That we should unite for the common differences of all African people and all black people. Um, so that's really pan-African, and then it was taken onto the continent by people like Kwame Nkrumah, who had to learn about pan-Africanism when he came to um, England, and 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 so and a lot of the, the Garvey, Garvey, um, Garvey, even though Garvey was in Africa, but a lot of it inspired pan-Africanism on the continent. So the idea of pan-Africanism is very di is is, is an idea coming from the diaspora, correct? Right? Because the Africans on the continent, um, there was no one Africa that was united, and this is something we don't quite understand. And the continent, I'm sorry, in the diaspora is that. As someone you say, someone's Africa, a man in Gambia doesn't even know what country is in Southeast Africa, he doesn't even know a country which is in North Africa. Look, the, the, the average Gambian, yeah, or the average person in East Africa might struggle to know parts of West Africa. Africa was never one Africa, it's always been divided, it's always been separate. Um, and what the, it was always, it was always different tribes. And people here, like for example, they or people in places they associate their tribe, not necessarily even in the country, so. I think that's something that we have to understand. So I do kind of get it as well because it was a diaspora view that commented continent. Even though I'm a Pan-African, but I do see why people look because it's like if you're when you're talking about one Africa, it's like well, it, what if you talk about one language, one nation, one this? Well, what language is going to triumph? Because what culture? Because there's you can be in one country like Nigeria, and there's so many different cultures, there's so many different languages just within that one country. So it, it, I, I don't. So there was never one Africa where you know what, under one governance or whatever, there was always, there wasn't borders, basically there was always a division, and there was always tribes and infighting in Africa, but the Europeans came and just basically made borders, called this country, and then took over, and just extended, basically, it and imposed their own laws and control on the country. But it's difficult, yeah, Africa has never been one together, so I kind of can see where people do come with that kind of view about this whole, particularly Africans on the continent,
2: yeah, so you know, one of the challenges we get, you talk about something about the borders. You know, borders uh, is, is one of the biggest challenges of Africa. You see, Africa, when you're talking about colonialism in Africa, uh, colonialism, you know, when the Europeans colonize Africa, they don't only colonize the physical structures and all. But colonialism, colonialism was back to I mean, the minds that it have been colonized. So this is the biggest problem. Like, you know, we this thing as a Gambian. You know, some people see me as a fuller. You know, I'm, I'm being, you know, I'm I'm being tagged by different, different, you know, kind of names. You understand? So, we, we also make it very difficult. In that. But also, the other thing also, I think, you know, when if Rastafari, you know, have to work, you know, we also need to get the government involved in into it. You know I've been saying it here, like, Africa, it, uh, it's so hard in the Gambia. It's just recently I heard about Pan-African about, about library. You know, you go to the university, you know, they don't even have have a course courses about in, in, in Pan African, and these are very very important. You know, we, we learn history in the school, but the history we learn is 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 all written by the West. So, you know, we need to get this kind of things. You know, if the government will have to be sponsoring, you know, programs like this, like which will support, uh, uh like Pan African, also which is going to support support like you know, Rastafari, like to really educate the people, I think that will be very important.
0: Yeah, I think there's a, clearly, um, like you hit hitting on the head. One of the things with colonialism is the mind, and you know the mind of a lot of people is everything looking towards the west. And I think that's something that we under we don't always quite look at, You've particularly seen on the continent. I've seen it of how colonialism has really affected on the, particularly Africans on the continent. were born here the mind in terms of we cannot do for self in terms of that we should always look to the west and we should always look to europe as the standard as the gold standard barrier and and i think it's just that 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 that, um acknowledgement of us doing that we can do for self and and um and i think that's really took in the minds and and it needs to be certainly a re-education on you know when you talk about people knowing more about you know culture history and also how we are connected because when you're talking about people see you differently in Gambia, some people see this Gambia in general. people see I mean, someone like me or people in the diaspora are completely different because you know they they don't know the history of connection. so Gambia this is the place of Kuntikente, home of Kuntikente, this is where so many enslaved, thousands, millions of enslaved Africans were taken from the shores of Gambia to the Caribbean, uh, American places but the average Gambian doesn't know hardly anything about slavery, certainly not about what happened to those slaves uh, what happened to those people when they left? So, for people like myself, who is a descendant of a one of those slaves that were taken away, maybe could have been from or could have been another Africa, but one of the descendant of them, then returning home and coming back, and then we are seen as Tubab, and then we are seen as um, foreigners. We are not seen as African, yeah? We are even seen as Jamaican, we are seen as this. So, I think there needs to be a reconnection of how we are connected, and even how we got to England, because our people... After, you know, we was taken from Africa, they went through slavery on the plantation. Then a lot of them migrated um, to England. That's how a lot of us got to uh, um, England um, because of that. So there needs to be a full education of, you know, how they see us as Africans in the diaspora. I mean, sometimes the ganglians on the ground, they just look at us as cash cows and people to exploit. And I think they also need to understand the struggle of the things that we have faced to get where we are. Because our people, there was a time, you know, when certainly my parents, mom's parents' generation, were, um, when my grandparents came to England, yeah, there were there there signs on the on the on the door that, and rent. Yeah, where they, they used to red black faces to black people. It said no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. In America, there was laws called Jim Crow, which segregated black people, white people, and black people. We had to fight. People had to fight for their rights for black people to have now. So when Africans going into the into the um, America and, and UK and, and and these places, they need to also understand the plight that we have played and some of us how we are. Bus are asked to get back to Africa, mm-hmm. and then when we come here, it's an insult for us to be then called as Tibab
2: yeah, that's good. Uh, Mr. Makolin, thank you so much for coming to this program. I know I'll also bring you here to interview you about the book, uh, Life in the Gambia. So today we talk about your book about the, the rise of Rastafari. So can you tell some of the people how can they get, get, get your book if somebody wants to read book about the rise of Rastafari?
0: So the rise of Rastafari, right? resistance, redemption, or repatriation. Um, you can order a copy of the book in Timbuktu, in Timbuktu Bookstore in Gambia, which is back for Fajara, isn't it? It's up.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, yeah. Back out, Back out yeah. to Also, you can contact me. Um, I'm on uh, my Gambia number is two eight zero seven seven eight zero. That's two eight zero seven seven eight zero. My Gambia number, um, and those are going to probably be the best ways in Gambia. If you're outside of Gambia, you can purchase the Rise of Rastafari on Amazon, um, and 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 the book will get shipped to you. Okay. Thank you so much
2: I really appreciate you coming to this program.